I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. People always ask me, what's it like being a writer for a career long term? And as I think about it, first, it's a lot of observing, listening and watching, seeing what people do, seeing how different things move through the world. Then it's a lot of time just by yourself, asking questions, thinking, figuring things out, problem solving. And then finally, there's the actual writing, which is split up into draft writing, revising, changing big things, cutting things, rewriting things, and editing. I had a friend who's incredibly talented. He had a master's fine arts fiction from the University of Oregon. I never got one of those because I applied twice to the University of Oregon for an MFA, and I didn't get in either time. But he did, and he graduated, and he had a great fiction project. And he spent about 10 years writing two novel drafts. And then he told me he quit. He just said, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to be alone in that room writing anymore. And a lot of writing is just being in a room alone, asking questions, problem solving, thinking things through, and then just writing and writing and writing. Then there are the rejections. And people always talk about getting rejected early, early in their career, but I've been continually rejected even late in my career. I've been writing for about 20 years. And this year I was rejected by publishers. I was rejected by literary magazines. Even standard magazines, big magazines, have rejected me this year. And sometimes in strange ways, for example... A big magazine that I won't name by name asked me for an article. So I worked on it for a month, sent it to them, and they were like, mm, I know we asked for this, but it's not quite right. They said, but what if you wrote this other thing? I said, okay. So I worked on another thing for them for a couple weeks, and I sent it to them. They're like, mm, this isn't right for us either. So that's how it goes. And also, if you write novels, which I do, Long term, you're going to spend a lot of time just crafting these novels. And some of the novels I've written have worked out and been published. I've published an adult novel, a young adult novel, and a crossover novel that was in between. But I've also written a couple novels that were horrible and didn't work out at all. In this last year and a half, I've been working on a novel that's a sequel to the novel that's with my agent right now. And as I'm working on this novel, tentatively titled The Infinite Universe, the other day, I was just thinking as I was revising it, thinking, this is terrible, this is trash, this is garbage. And I was really coming to doubt the novel and wondering why I'd spent a year and a half on it. And then I get an email that, like so many things I send off, I've forgotten that I even applied for this thing. But I'd sent half of the novel that I was working on, The Infinite Universe, to the Oregon Literary Arts to apply to become a fiction fellow where they pay you during a time off from work 
to finish a big project or to start a big project. So I'd sent them half of this novel that I was beginning to think was garbage. For whatever reason, they selected me as the 2021 Oregon Literary Arts Fellow in Fiction. So this summer, I'm being paid to finish this novel that I didn't even think was any good, that I thought was becoming total trash, that I thought I should probably give up on because it wasn't working out. So sometimes, after many, many rejections, you get a moment of good news. So I went back and I did the math and I looked at my rejections and I'm now between 500 and 600 total rejections since I started writing seriously 20 years ago. And that works out to 25 plus rejections a year. Some years it's more, some years it's less, fewer, but usually about 25 rejections a year. But this week, I got good news. I won the Oregon Literary Arts Fellowship for Fiction. So this episode is the good news episode. I hadn't hung out with my friend Brian Nagaski in a year due to COVID. But then in March, we both got vaccinated. and We decided we were going to go on an adventure together. Now, a little bit about Brian. First of all, I call him Bri Bri because I love him. Bri Bri has, you know, nine or ten inches on me, 75 pounds on me. He was a high school football player and wrestler but also a lacrosse star, and he ended up playing lacrosse in college, and now he coaches lacrosse. He's a big defenseman. Bri Bri's Polish and from New Jersey, and he has the best laugh in the history of the world. When he laughs, everybody around him laughs, even if they didn't hear the joke. He's also great to adventure with, He's the first person I ever slept in a snow trench with in the backcountry snow camping. Never built a snow trench before, and I was a little worried it was going to be cold. But Bri Bri was the little spoon, and I was the big spoon, and I was actually warm the entire time. It got down to negative 15, but I had Bri Bri's big body in there with me. It was great. So over spring break, we decided we were going to adventure together. Me and Bri Bri. And he likes to explore and he likes to climb. And we'd been told by a mutual friend about this secret new climbing spot in a Rimrock area above a remote creek in central Oregon. We are like, this sounds amazing. But the thing was, it was behind an elk gate on a natural preserve in a national grasslands area. So it was... 2.6 miles of rugged terrain on an old, old forest service road to this creek. And then a half mile up this steep hill to where the columns were, where there were finger cracks and hand cracks, fist cracks, and rugged, hard off widths. We were like, the climbing sounds perfect. But we're going to do over five miles in and back during the day since we're going to camp outside of the preserve. And Bri Bri was like, well, what if we mountain bike? He's a good mountain biker. I'm not. And I said, I hate to tell you bad news, but I can't mountain bike. 
because the repetitive jostling is bad for my brain and I have a significant brain injury. He knows about my brain injury, but he didn't know that I couldn't mountain bike. And he's like, well, that's okay. I could bring a good, you know, excellent shock mountain bike suspension bike for you. And if it gets too jostly, you know, you can slow down or whatever you need to do. And I was like, well, I'll probably have to push it. Or weave back and forth and find a really smooth area. And he's like, okay, no problem. So we decide we're going to go to this backcountry area and we're going to mountain bike in. We get to the elk gate and he gives me my bike, lowers the seat for me, gets out his bike, which is huge. And we start pedaling. But the thing is, every time it gets really rugged, I have to slow down. And sometimes I just have to stop and push my bike. And with most people... I would be the most annoying mountain biking partner in the world. But with Bri Bri, he just stops over and over and stares at birds, or he slows down, or he loops back. And I said, Bri Bri, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm going so slowly. And he was like, no problem, no, it's cool, I don't care. And we slowly, slowly make our way all the way down into this gorge to this creek, and we carry our bikes across the creek, and we stash them. And then we hike up the steep hillside and we climb cracks and off with cracks all day long. And it's sunny or raining a little bit or snowing a little bit or just dropping sleet on us. And in one moment I'm climbing this crazy off with and I'm a little bit scared and it's snowing hard on my face as I look up. And it's a pretty good adventure. And we climb all day have a ton of fun together. And Bri Bri's laugh makes everything better and we, we eat a lot of good food. And then we hike back down to our bikes and we carry our bikes back across the creek and we start pedaling back out of this gorge and over and over I have to slow down or I have to stop and push my bike. And I say, Bri Bri, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry you're going so slowly. And he's like, no. I bike this pace all the time with Maya, who's his nine-year-old his nine-year-old daughter, Maya. So I'm basically that guy who bikes as slowly as a nine-year-old. But Bri Bri really doesn't care. He just stares at birds. And we see osprey, red-tailed hawk. We see three golden eagles. And we pedal and walk our bikes so slowly out of the gorge, so slowly back to the elk gate, so slowly back to the truck. But Bri Bri never complains at all. Because he's that kind of friend. And during this year of COVID, it's good to have a friend like that. Someone you message who always has a sense of humor. And when you finally get back together, he doesn't care that you bike two miles an hour. In other good news, I signed with a new agent. This last week, Yishai Seidman of Dunno, Carlson, and Lerner Literary Agency, New York. And we're moving forward with book projects and podcast projects, maybe recording for Audible, looking at writing for TV, lots of different things. I'm keeping an open mind. And right now I'm writing a trilogy. This trilogy is set in Eugene, Oregon. And it follows different characters in the first two books, the characters then coming together in the third book. 
there in Eugene, post Cascadia quake, in the rubbled city, interacting with an extremist cult, a creepy religious cult that's trying to take over the destroyed city. So in preparing to write these novels, I had to research the Cascadia quake. And Oregon State University is actually the leading research institute on the Cascadia quake, so I learned lots of interesting things. Like, for example, the Cascadia quake takes place every 200 to 500 years. The plate, the geologic plate, buckles and then slips and everything is destroyed from Crescent City, California, all the way through Oregon, through Washington, into British Columbia in southern Canada. If the quake takes place every 200 years, it's often an 8.8 quake on the Richter scale. But as it goes more towards 500 years, it's more of a 9.2 earthquake. Some characteristics. Well, first of all, a nine-point earthquake is about four minutes of shaking. So in Eugene, right in the middle of that earthquake zone, there will be a shock, a jolt, and then about 30 seconds before the four minutes of shaking begins. There will be four minutes of shaking And because Eugene is set between the Willamette and the Mackenzie River in the Willamette River Valley, we're actually in an old floodplain. And the earth in that floodplain is very loose. So there will be massive undulations. We know exactly when the last quake took place. It took place in 1700. And we know this because of a ghost tsunami in Japan. There's no written record here in this geographical area on the west coast of the North American plates. But in Japan, there's perfect record of a tsunami that came out of nowhere and killed many, many people. So they wrote it down and later figured out where it came from. We'll have a tsunami on our coast too. The sand and the trees will actually flip upside down on our coast. There's different estimates of how many people will die. At 8.8 Richter, which is where we're possibly right now, it could be as few as 13,000 people dying. Originally. You have to think long term, though. For example, in the Oregon State research, they've done an analysis of um, everything that's set up. Right? Like, how long will we be without different amenities for example we'll be without any water for six to 24 months so anywhere between half a year and two years we'll be without police and fire for at least six months hospitals could take a year and a half to two years to be set up again people will go without electricity and water for many many months so that sets up an interesting survival situation And this might all sound like really bad news, but I've been thinking as I've been writing these novels about the apocalypse, about disaster aftermath. And there's different ways to look at it. 
A prepper a while back sent me this list of things that she and her husband are setting up in case of emergency or disaster or apocalypse. They dug a bunker. She said, you need a firearm for each individual in the household and 10,000 rounds. And this is not to acquire meat. This is to protect you and your family from the other humans. And I thought a lot about that. And maybe I'm just not the biggest gun fan of shotguns. I would be willing to use a gun to hunt for food. But I thought about what my friend Brendan Leonard said. Brendan Leonard of the website Semi-Rad. He said, if the world gets to a place where I have to shoot my neighbor over a can of beans, that's not a world I want to live in. And I'm with Brendan on that. The other thing is I think about my experiences in the past where I've been challenged or where my neighborhood's been challenged. And it hasn't been that violent post-apocalyptic situation that writers like me conjure up for novels and for movies and for Netflix shows. For example, a couple years ago, we had a pretty catastrophic ice storm in the Willamette Valley. Obviously, it was winter since it's an ice storm. Very cold. The rain was forming in the clouds, but it was in the 20s as it hit the ground. So everything got covered by a coating of ice, about an inch thick, ripped down trees, broke roofs that were weakened, destroyed cars, completely stopped the city. For four days, most places had no power. So in our house, we lit a fire in the fireplace. We put sleeping bags there. We gathered candles. And we played board games and cards by the fire. And we slept in warm sleeping bags. We boiled water. Put the boiled water bottles in wool socks and put them down in the bottoms of our bags. And actually, we had a great four days. But even better, I set up a camp stove and propane on the front porch put a lot of mugs and dishes out there. And every morning, our neighbors from the right and our neighbors from the left and our neighbors from across the street would gather in our front yard and I would boil water and we would make hot chocolate and we would make coffee and we would all drink coffee and hot chocolate and tea for an hour or two each morning. We would hang out and talk to each other and figure out how we could help each other And I ran a chainsaw, pulling limbs from the tops of cars and out of different driveways and yards and off of roofs. And we all piled limbs, and I chopped them up. And we used everything we had, and we built fires, and we used the fuel, and we took care of each other. And that's what I think maybe will happen in post-disaster, Eugene. Maybe we'll all just take care of each other, and we'll think of how we can help each other. And we'll drink coffee and hot chocolate together and tea in the mornings. In other good news, people make me happy. I love waiters and cashiers. I love neighbors and nurses. Everybody has stories and interesting moments if you ask them questions. My high school students are hilarious on Zoom. 
For example, uh, I have a shirtless senior boy who keeps a white cockatoo on his shoulder each day during Zoom. Sometimes his bird plays with his cat. So he'll have the cat on his lap, the bird on his shoulder, and the bird will dip down to peck at the cat's head. And the cat will take a lazy swipe up at the bird. And I'm supposed to be teaching, I guess. But I'm completely entertained. And lately, my rock climbing students and I have been coming up with the worst food products you can drink during Zoom class. I'll hold up a mug and I'll be like, what could this be filled with? And a ninth grade girl will say, what if it was 12 ounces of cold mayonnaise? And I'm like, yes. Imagine that. Or a junior girl recently came up with the idea of drinking a hot cup of microwaved clams. That made me pretty happy. And other people who make me happy. Um, I love it when professionals are off topic. For example, my wife, Jenny, she didn't have her wisdom teeth out when she was a teenager like most people. So we were... Uh, we, we knew each other. We were adults when she had her wisdom teeth out. And for whatever reason, her dentist, who was extracting the four teeth, decided that she didn't need to be under. So because she wasn't completely under anesthetic, I could be in the room. So he used a lot of local anesthetic and then nitrous oxide. So she was completely out of it. And he's sitting there next to her chair, and he numbs her with the needle and then he starts the nitrous. She basically is near passed out. So it's just me and him in the room as far as, you know, being cognizant, being aware. And he starts to break her wisdom teeth in half and then extract a half of each tooth as he goes. And his tools look to me like hammers, chisels, and screwdrivers. I'm sure there are different dental names for those tools, but what it appeared to me was is that on a silver tray, tray he had a hammer, a smaller hammer, a couple different kinds of like splitter chisels, and then maybe four different types and diameters of screwdriver flatheads. So I'm watching him as he works with these tools, but instead of him explaining what he's doing dentistry-wise, he talks to me the entire time about pro wrestling. He's like working his forearm and Jenny's jaw pops and I can hear it pop. And he's like, do you like pro wrestling? And I'm like, uh, no, I mean, tell me about that. I, I try not to say no when people ask me if... I like things because if you say no, they won't keep talking. So I'm like, oh, I don't know much about that. You know, like, tell me about pro wrestling. And he's like, oh, I'm not into modern pro wrestling. I'm into like 90s pro wrestling, maybe 80s a little bit. I like to watch the old video cassettes on my VCR. And I'm like, okay. So he rewatches 80s and 90s pro wrestling. And so he's talking to me about pro wrestling and he's splitting a molar with the wedging tool and a hammer. And he's saying, ah, oh, did you ever see Rena Greek as Sable? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that, yeah, seriously. And he's like, oh, she was so hot. Rolls his forearms. Jenny's jaw pops again. He's like, Stone Cold Steve Austin, you got to know him. And I'm like, yep, 
Yep, I know Stone Cold Steve Austin. He slurps up a little bit of Jenny's blood. He keeps talking. He's like, Shawn Michaels? Shawn Michaels? And The Undertaker? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard of The Undertaker, yep. He's like, oh, The Undertaker was a good character. Chiseling away at Jenny's tooth, pulling out a little piece of the root with what looked like just basic metal tweezers. I don't know if there's another name for it. He's like, Bret Hart. Bret Hart. And I just kept nodding. And he kept extracting teeth. I haven't geeked out for a while on this podcast. And geeking out on random and esoteric topics makes me happy. So I was thinking about wisdom teeth after that last little podcast section. And, you know... No sé nada de eso. Pero me gustaría aprender, so I looked a lot of facts up. First of all, I was curious, so I had to look up four different sources, like, why do we have wisdom teeth? What were they possibly for back in time? And scientists believe that the last of the 32 teeth to erupt, the wisdom teeth, which often erupt between the ages of 17 and 25, but sometimes as late as the early 30s, the last of the 32 teeth come in, in the rear parts of our jaws, so that as we grow older, we'll still, as we weaken, be able to chew really tough food or uncooked meat. So back in the days when humans were hunting and foraging and living in caves, They needed these teeth as they got older so that they could crush uncooked meat between their molars. But now, fewer and fewer people are even having wisdom teeth show up. I mean, there's evolution, there's change all the time. And as of now, 35% of people don't ever have wisdom teeth, which is interesting. But the problem with wisdom teeth is that 85% of formed wisdom teeth will have to be removed because they can become impacted, which is when a tooth is stuck against bone or stuck against another tooth. So then I looked up, well, you know, what happens if you have an impacted tooth? The first thing that happens is a jaw cyst appears, and then the cyst will destroy the bone. And then in that absence of bone, in that open space, there are biotics, and you'll develop sepsis. And then the infection can spread to your neck, to your head. It can actually spread all over your body, and you can die of this abscessed tooth, this sepsis in your jaw. So you have to have them out if they come in, unless you want to die of sepsis like a caveman at age 22. So I looked up how many people have wisdom teeth removed in the United States each year, and that's 5 million people on average. And those 5 million people that have wisdom teeth out have on average two teeth out because you can have one or two or three or four wisdom teeth. So that's 10 million million wisdom teeth removed each year in the United States. 
And the total cost of that wisdom tooth surgery in the U.S. is $3 billion. It's a $3 billion industry taking these teeth out of our jaws that we don't need. And like I said, people can have one, two, three, or four, and a dentist doesn't know how many you're going to have. But here's an interesting thing. Very rarely a person can have five wisdom teeth. And if they have five, each tooth past four is called a supernumerary tooth. So then I was curious, like, well, if they on average come in at 17 to 25, what's the youngest that anyone's had wisdom teeth erupt, break through? And the youngest in the United States was a kid named Matthew Adams, who had his wisdom teeth erupt in the back of his jaw at the age of nine and then I was also interested, like, who dies of these sorts of things, you know? So I Googled a few times. Hugo Boss, the founder of the German luxury fashion line, died of a tooth abscess. Hugo Boss died of a tooth abscess. But remember, this is the good news episode. So good news, you and I have yet to die of an abscess tooth. And in a final piece of good news, this week I got to hang out with my childhood best friend, a friend that we used to run around the Sumner Washington forest together or the fields of Camp Sherman in central Oregon near their family cabin where I'd go to stay with them for a few weeks at a time. We would catch crawdads and eat them with butter. We would sleep under the stars together out along the fence line in the forts we built. So my best friend the other day, he took me to his favorite spot in Eugene. It's on a little backwater off the Willamette River, a little run with a dam drop where you can swim face up, Head backwards, head downstream, drop over the dam with your eyes open, flip into this little pool. And he and I talked for four hours as I fly fished with the maroon caddis. And I caught three fish, two hatchery trout, and one 15 and a half inch native pound and a half beautiful rainbow trout that we held and then released back into the water. And that was a really, really nice moment with my friend. So it's dedicated, this episode, to my childhood best friend, Mike Wilt. Thank you for always being my friend. And to all of you out there, the listeners, if you like this episode, please give it a five-star review or write a review on iTunes. And thank you today for listening to The Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my